0: Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. All right. Thanks for joining us for Episode 5 of Disaster Politics. This episode, we're going to blow your mind globally. We're going to start off with Dr. Uzma Alam, and she's going to talk us through how climate change and geopolitics really sort of help set the stage and influence the way that we respond to disasters and how politics can actually create forces that are just as profound, if not more so, than naturally occurring disasters. Then we're going to talk to Anthony Lowenstein, and Anthony's going to talk to us about his work as an international journalist and advocate, and how the incentive structure of NGOs and nonprofits and for-profits and governments aren't always in line with what's most needed on the ground in these disaster situations. So enough with the intro, let's get right into it. We'll see you on the other side. Joining me now is Uzma Alam. Uzma has uh, worked with a number of NGOs across the world, including the Red Cross in Kenya and International Medical Corps. She has her PhD in microbiology and immunization.
1: Immunology. Immunology,
0: <laughs> pardon me. Uh, and has done her MPH and her postdoctorate at, uh, at Yale University, uh, among many, many other accolades. Uh, Uzma, thanks so much for joining and for talking to us today.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for having me. Uh, I'm very excited about having this conversation on a topic that's not only very timely, but it's something that I personally feel very passionate about and something that I truly believe in that if each and every one of us arm ourselves with the right knowledge around the topic. We stand to save lives of some of the most vulnerable populations around the globe.
0: Well, it's great to have you. And why don't you talk to us a little bit more? Because you've had some great experiences uh, around the world, but also really in those kind of like deep community settings as mm-hmm. well, too, and really where the true work is being done. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience and your perspective on global disaster great. response?
1: So, like you said, I'm Dr. Osmar Alam. I'm originally from Kenya, but I've gone to, to school in the U.S. I have a global health background, and I've experienced working across across sub-Saharan Africa covering research, programming and policy. Uh, I've been, like you mentioned again, and most recently involved with Ebola response in Liberia and Guinea. I've done programming in Dadaab, which is one of the largest, which actually is the largest refugee camp in the world. I'm involved with post-Ebola reconstruction agenda in Sierra Leone, looking at how to provide ambulance services. Uh, I've done prime primary health provision in Somalia, and currently involved in policy issues around the tide of increasing non-communicable diseases, heart attacks, cancers, blood pressures, compared to infectious diseases, malaria, and HIV, and how these would play into disaster relief efforts.
0: That's great. And I I, I love also bringing in these kind of uh, uh, non-communicable diseases as well, too, because this is kind of an emerging area that I've seen a little bit more and more in the research and Mm -hmm. more folks focused on that we tend to forget about in world of uh, Ebola and earthquakes and tornadoes and things like that. Right. Yeah. We have uh, a lot of these different groups that are involved with uh, um, disaster response. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have NGOs, non-profits, we have for-profits, we have the host country governments. I mean, how, how do they all sort of intersect? Like when a, when a disaster response comes together, is it a request coming from the community? How, how do all these things kind of come together right. to respond?
1: So, let's just let's take a step back and try to understand how, you know, one, do NGOs have a role in supporting global disaster responses and how the different categories you just mentioned are set up and how the play happens, right? right? Yeah. So today, in today's landscape, disasters are on the increase and they're more prolonged, right? Mm-hmm. And we can discuss the reasons in, in more detail. But the fact are that, Right now, as we speak, we're in the midst of one of the largest humanitarian crises since World War II. Right? Okay. We have close to forty-two thousand five hundred people displaced every single day, on a daily basis. Right.
0: Now, this is across all of across, the disasters, across right, multiple across, disasters,
1: across all the disasters happening. So, every any single day, look at you know what's happening around the globe. At right. least forty-two thousand five hundred people displaced daily from their homes. Wow. Take the example of Syria alone, right? It's a country where half of its population has been displaced. Wow. Half, right? Beyond wow. this, as we speak, as we're recording this, there are 20 million people across four countries. Somalia, South Sudan, Northeastern Nigeria, and Yemen starving. Not to mention another million people in Ethiopia and 2.2 million people in Kenya, my home country, at risk of facing severe hunger. Wow. Right, and then to top up all this, we have one of the most recent UNHCR reports that says estimates currently there are about sixty-five point three million refugees around the world. Fifty-one percent of these happen to be children under the age of eighteen. Wow! Right, and this dire statistic doesn't even account for refugees that have been resettled, or the five million Palestinians that are known to. To be the largest refugee group in the world, so therefore NGOs have a more signif- have more significant actors than ever before in humanitarian disaster relief because in many cases, the magnitude and frequency of disasters overwhelm governments mm-hmm. and their capacities. But coming to think of the different categories of NGOs and how how they play into them, broadly speaking, I. The way I like to think about it is is there are four broad categories, right? And the very first category, which is a very important category, when it comes to disaster relief, when it comes to disaster response, when it comes to surveillance, emergency preparedness, uh, signaling danger, one of the first players on the ground, and usually the ones that are totally forgotten and never remembered, but are always the people, the first on the ground and the last to leave are the local NGOs. Within any country, and then beyond that, we have our second tier. What well, I call it the second tier, which are our more well-known mainstream NGOs, Save the Children, the Oxfams, etc. And within these, array, we also have the faith-based organisations, such as the Catholic Relief Organisation, uh, Islamic Relief organisations, Adra's, and etc. And then we have. A third very unique category, and one that obviously I've worked for, which is the Red Cross movement. Sure. So the Red Cross movement consists of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the International Federation of the Red Cross. But in addition, it has 190 national Red Cross and Red Crescent societies across the world. So 190 countries have a Red Cross society within them. And the Red Cross movement is one that has been known to be one of the founders of the three guiding humanitarian principles that mm-hmm. mean all NGOs responding to disasters align themselves with, right? Humanity, impartiality, and neutrality. Mm-hmm. But what makes the Red Cross particularly an interesting example of how the interplay with the governments and the NGOs is their auxiliary role. So all the national societies have an auxiliary role to government. And what, what does that mean? So any of the national Red Cross societies are created by an act of parliament within that country.
0: Okay, so it's like a franchise Red, yeah. within the country. Right? Well,
1: it's, it's actually directly linked to the government because it's not like registering an NGO, which okay. means that all these Red Cross societies have a voice in the development of legislation covering disaster okay. laws, covering migration, and the laws which govern protection.
0: So is this similar, like in the United States, the Red Cross has this kind of quasi-governmental role? Right. right? That's, That's the same exactly idea. Right. So our the American
1: right. Red Cross, right? Right, yeah. Which makes it very interesting from other organizations, because these are organizations that are actually not only voluntary-led, but also embedded within the governments of organizations we're going to work with and have direct consequences on policies. So you can see how these would act very differently from, let's say, one of the local NGOs or one of the international NGOs that we've already described, right? Right, right. Very different thing. And then the fourth big large category is obviously the donor governments and the UN agencies, right? So the UN agencies being... The World Food Program, UNHCR, UNICEF, WHO, and all, right? And these also regularly respond to disasters, but they need operational imp- implementing partners. And their response is slightly, their involvement in disaster response is slightly different in that they're more of a coordination hub. Four very different categories, all very involved, all very necessary very different mandates, same mandate of saving lives with very different roles to play.
0: You know, so it's interesting that, you know, you talk about the scope of disasters and how many disasters are going on simultaneously mm-hmm. and how massive these are. Right. Um, certainly within the United States, there's controversy on are there more disasters because there are more disasters or are there more disasters because people have learned, state and local governments have learned that by declaring disasters, you open the door to more uh-huh. funds. Uh, I don't mean to load the question, but but what's at play here? Are we legitimately seeing more disasters because of increased vulnerability or is there, kind of an incentive structure. that's at play here that's leading to uh, uh, more disasters being recognized and declared.
1: Wow, that's interesting, but obviously very complex question, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously, one way of looking at it, and it, it happens in any field, when you start getting more statistics, there's always the argument, is it because all of a sudden, we have the ability to measure and that's where we're no, seeing fine, something yeah. or not. But within the debate of Disasters or humanitarian responses. Obviously, you know Ebola has taught us a lot of lessons. You know, some of the local uh, issues we've had from the Katrina's and stuff have taught us that it is an issue of failure of management. But two critical things that I would like to add to the debate, or at least you know, bring up the conversation, is the role of climate change and geopolitics in relationship to how or why we see this increased magnitude and and pro- prolonged disasters so let's take climate change okay so i would argue that the largest indirect effect of climate change and health is social change right okay that includes conflict and migration mm-hmm. again we've said you know conflict includes a wide range of factors but there is a growing recognition that climate change conflict nexus exists and is associated with food insecurity right we've already talked about the 20 million starving people
0: Okay. Yeah. And there's actually been some research, I know we've talked about it at, right. at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia, uh, on how, you know, there's some evidence that the Syrian civil war was preceded right. by a climate change. Exactly. Drought. Right. right.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, you know, some people still think that the debate's ongoing, but, you know, I'd like to present some solid cases and statistics to you to hopefully to convince let's you let's resolve that is, it right exists, here right, right now let's fix this so let's <laughs> so talk about food insecurity right so large aspects of food insecurity growth growth mm-hmm. of cash cro- crops right uh, which directly feeds into food access or utilization uh, intricately related climate change no doubt about that we, sure. we, we obviously know that have a flood you lose your harvest right have prolonged drought, have prolonged right. drought you don't get crops right but then one of the effects of this is in return is that acute food insecurity increases social grievances driving engagement in rebellion, conflict and migration, right? You've just given us the example of Syria. Let me give you an example in 2012, right? So six of the nine countries in Africa's Sahel region, which is a semi-arid region that runs from western to northern central Africa, Mm -hmm. were involved in conflict, right? And Food insecurity was implicated either as a cause or consequences in several of these cases, mm-hmm. right? A fact that's equally disturbing to me beyond this is that statistics or data, research has started showing that in the absence of climate change adaptation, mm-hmm. by the year 2050, the number, again, a startling statistic, the number of undernourished children under the age of five will increase by 20 to 25 million, wow. right? a disaster in the making. Mm-hmm. 20 to 25 million children under the age of directly linked to climate change. And then beyond this, another consequence of climate change is obviously the linkage with natural disasters. Sure. Floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires. And I'm sure you obviously are better place than I am to share some of these examples. No, but but
0: absolutely. And actually, one of the most difficult things in uh, the science of climate change right now is to attribute specific events to climate change because extreme events by their nature are very rare. And so forecasting them, it's very difficult with historical data because you're dealing with smaller numbers. But I think that the consensus is, just as you said, that Mm -hmm. we're going to see more extreme events. For sure. The question is what? We may see less storms, but more intense storms when we see them. Some places will get wetter, some will get hotter. And you mentioned earthquakes. We have the, the natural resource extraction, which is now uh, more and more being directly linked to the fracking, mm-hmm. uh, hydrofracking going on in those states. So it, it's, it's obviously changing the, the very um, nature of right. our nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also bring up a startling statistic with children and when uh, children are lost in this process. It's it, you know yeah. ev- every life that's affected matters, uh, but with children it persists throughout a lifetime. That these this is opportunity lost in terms of the next Einstein, the next scientist. Oh, yeah. But it's also it's not only that you're losing that advantage, but you're creating a generation that becomes dependent on the state that is under resourced, undernourished, which translates into all different kinds oh, of, it, of it global social issues.
1: It's devastating to social social fabrics and communities. So apart from climate change, another Idea which I alluded to earlier, which I like to call stress factors for why we're seeing the patterns we're seeing of increased magnitude and and crisis is uh, geopolitics. Yes. Right? Very loaded area. And (laughs) we all agree that refugee crises are very complex and multifaceted, right? Mm -hmm. But I think we'd be doing a failure to people around the world, to refugees, to communities, to our own societies, right? Or even to our own belief systems, if we don't acknowledge the fact that superpowers are directly or indirectly at the root of many conflicts by creating dictatorships and undermining democratic governments for geopolitical interests, right? So again, I will give you an example out of Africa, mm-hmm. right? So let's take the example of the Democratic Republic of Congo,
2: mm-hmm.
1: DRC, which was formerly known as Zaire, right? Yes. And this is like a fascinating historical narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1967, right, US, the US, obviously with the assistance of the CIA, propped the dictator Mbuter Seko into power, mm-hmm. right? He had a brutal regime, he had horrible human rights response, but they supported him for three decades, right? Riding him with more than $400 million, $400 million in weapons and military training mm-hmm. while he was repressing his people. Come 1997, Mobutu gets overthrown by Lawrence Kabila. What does the U.S. do? It immediately shifts its support to Kabila without once questioning how Kabila, who already had a record of ethnic hatred or ethnic, you know, violence of how supporting such a dictator or such a regime would lead to dem- democracy after it already failed under right? right? Mm-hmm. Well, what was the outcome? Before long, right, civil war broke out. And not any any civil war. It was one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II with nine other African states built into the conflict, right? And at this point, I'm sure some people will argue that well, the U.S. did lead in diplomatic aff- efforts at the start of the war, but at this point, the U.S. had trained troops on both sides of the conflict mm-hmm. at a time when daily, right, 2 million people were disp- displaced from their homes, at a time when, you know, ongoing 2 million people were displaced. What was the outcome? At the end, when everything was done and said, we had 500,000 refugees on our hand, mm-hmm. right? And going beyond this, the real... Sad thing is that the US is not even the top, the top ranked supplier of arms or ammunition or military training to to African countries or countries with poor human records. It actually comes in sixth after China, Ooh. who is the main supplier of ammunition to Sudan, which was used in the Darfur genocide. The statistic, the, the, the whole story keeps going on and on, right? So unfortunately, it seems like we haven't forgotten, we haven't learned from history. Yeah. Right. And- when it comes to geopolitics.
0: And, and I think, too, that that's really kind of what is behind this and in some of the other conversations we have on this podcast is that we need to understand and acknowledge these political influences, right. right? That there is a humanitarian objective that's articulated in providing aid, right. but to justify use of a nation's national security apparatus and diplomatic apparatus, there's always a what's in it for me. Right. And the what's in it for me isn't necessarily in line with what's in the best interests of, right. uh, of the host country. And so I, I think there are, you know, examples across the board there, and you mentioned that, that even with the... Um, no superpower is clean of this and yet it drives the, the the future of so many different different areas and
1: i mean yeah and you know i've given you examples from from africa but obviously you know there are lots more right yeah something you know i've just come from Haiti, and everybody talks about relief and donor roles in haiti but the start of haiti right 1991 after 200 years of Haitian people, you know, fighting against rebellion, slave rebellion, put up this nation of, of Haiti, right? And they elected a truly first democratic government led by Father Ristad. And what happens? He's overthrown in eight months by a coup led by the US, right? The same country that we're talking about disasters, we're still talking about supporting, we're still talking about donor investments, we're still talking about immigration crisis, right? And then come to the point that you said, you know, the consequences of how our governments interact and what the consequences are, right?
0: And all just kind of, I think, striking examples of that. uh, You know, there are these motivations for involvement right. that that no one seems to go into particularly at mm-hmm. least from a nation state perspective and right. there are arguments out there on whether altruism truly exists right. or not right on whether there is such a thing or whether there's always some other underpinning mm-hmm. for that now mm-hmm. with the the communities that are sort of in the middle of all this that are right. impacted by all of this uh-huh. and and kind of working within these natural disasters and within kind of the geopolitical forces that are doing that how how are they responding to this how are they reacting to, to these situations?
1: That's a fantastic question. But I'd just like to take a, a step back and just touch again on, on the previous question, right, of, of the roles and responsibilities of, of foreign bodies, right? So we've given numerous examples of our geopolitics and stuff. But when we're talking about disasters, and especially today, I think we cannot forget the so-called European crisis, the European refugee crisis, right? And the sad thing about... The other consequences of, you know, geopolitical involvement and stuff is so popular belief or social media, whatever you want to believe, is that, you know, Europe is suffering the brunt or even our, you know, own current policies are saying we need to keep immigrants out or refugees out and stuff. The sad truth is that the countries that are burdened in providing for these refugees or displaced people are... The Lebanons, the Pakistans, right? The already underdeveloped countries. And it's not necessarily the, Europe, the European nations and stuff, right? Look at the statistics of Europe compared to the biggest refugee camp in the in Kenya or the biggest refugee population in Turkey or Lebanon or Pakistan. It's something that just keeps on having consequences and keeps on feeding into this whole disaster cycle, if we want to call it, if, if we can call it that, and creating it crisis, right? It's just not that one-time intervention or that one-time issue.
0: So is there anything sort of in these areas where people are impacted, sort of in these areas that they're in disasters? Are they constantly kind of playing catch up, trying to recover from the last disaster? Is there a way to get ahead of this? Is there a way to mitigate against both natural disasters as well as kind of these geopolitical forces? What What's kind of the reality on the ground and what's what's the way ahead, would you think?
1: Going back to what, you know, when, when you introduced me and what, you know, Why I said that I really truly believe that this is an area that if we all arm ourselves with the right knowledge, we can touch lives. And what I meant by that is all of us, every single person, right, regardless of what your background is, as people living in a civil society, as people who have governments accountable to. If you're armed with these facts, right, it's your responsibility, it's your. Social justice, to stand up to your politicians, to stand up to the people making these rules and regulations, to talk about these facts, to mm-hmm. share about them, to correct them, right? It's politics doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? That's, that's one thing. And then I think on the other ground, and I mean, climate change, right? The yeah. withdrawal of American leadership from the Paris Climate Accord is, is a classical example, right? Of how we can play a role in in, in reversing it and in creating creating pressure, right? But in response to the second piece that you asked, of how communities, you know, deal deal with disasters, obviously, right? We've seen failed states because of crisis, right? Yeah. And in that case, they're playing playing catch up, right? Yeah. But then there are also success stories there. To be looked at, and I think that's that's the the human piece of disasters and crises is that resilience of people. Right? Yeah, they are they are success success stories, and when we think of success stories, obviously, one of the big topics again in the disaster space or or response space is. How do you make communities resilient? Right. Or what does resilience mean? And I know you guys are doing That's a lot of work on that. Big question today. Yeah. Right. Um, and what does resilience mean to somebody? Yeah. We can empower ourselves to make a difference. There are there are ways to do that to do it
0: and you know even domestically and uh on the the last podcast episode where we had uh, uh daniel Holmesy from uh, san francisco talking to you know uh brings a really interesting perspective on resilience on that political empowerment mm-hmm. and that sort of community empowerment and empowering right. sort of people who are in the middle of all of this with being able to understand these things and really, really. as you mentioned the one of the goals of this podcast, too, is just in recognition right. that a lot of people who are affected by these political systems don't necessarily see how they right. work. So certainly shining a light on that.
1: You asked, well, how do affected communities react to to support from from the different different mm-hmm. entities? And I think you've, you've already said the, the buzzword that's for me, which is community engagement, right? So on on the surface, right, people affected by crisis, it's anybody can imagine, right, what or how they would respond to somebody or something that saved their lives. Mm -hmm. I think as a community, right, though we try to do the right thing, our actions result in negative consequences, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And what I mean by this is that when we go into disasters, right, or when we go into humanitarian crisis, complex crisis, whatever whatever you want you might call them, right, we go in as what defines us as professionals, right? We go in as a responder, we go as clinician, a clinician, log- a logistician, a reporter, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. We go in with big hearts, no doubt about it, right? We go with an amazing courage, right? And we go in with unparalleled commitment, right? I have colleagues on the ground who have families in different countries who have children in different countries or women men you know of all different backgrounds I myself have aged parents that I've left back and have gone into serve so it it takes a lot I'm not taking anything away from it right but the mistake that we make right is I think that we forget to go in with the bigger thing that defines us all right Mm -hmm. and what is this I think we forget to go in as fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters of the community, right? Mm-hmm. We forget that what binds people at the time of crisis is their identity, is the culture, is community and religion and the consequences. And again, I'll give you an example from, from Ebola, right? So we have some of the consequences are a lot of the stories we've heard of, you know, aid organizations shut down, shot at, people not listening. But let me give you stru- real examples from... Solid examples that are still very fresh with me from from the Ebola epidemic, right? So the Ebola epidemic as we know was huge and and Devastating, mm-hmm. right? We know a lot of money was poured in. We know a lot of NGOs were on the ground Everybody was trying their hardest to do but we just couldn't make a breakthrough in, in the beginning and the tide just kept run, rising and then at one time it was predicted like close to 10,000 deaths a day Got that didn't come to an yeah. Date, there were some,
0: but, yeah, right? yeah, some of the models that predicted right. with no intervention. How so bad the question it could get. raised,
1: yeah. why were we failing? Right, what were we doing? We had the money, we obviously had the capacity, the so called mm-hmm. capacity, the technical understanding, yes. Right, Ebola wasn't the first time we'd seen it,
0: and we had stopped outbreaks before with exactly. less of an understanding, right. right? And so
1: it really raised this question. It was the eye opener for a lot of us. I know personally for me, it's, it's changed me for a lifetime of how I would go into a response situation or respond in a humanitarian crisis. Actually happening was that because we hadn't taken the time to understand the community, we hadn't in taken the time to engage with them, we went in thinking that we knew it all. We went in with a top-bottom approach. I'll give you examples. were examples from the Uganda, you know, the Uganda outbreak, where we said, you know, don't go eat game meat. Uh, don't eat uh, uh, the
0: bush meat, the right? bush yeah. meat yeah. because
1: it causes Ebola, right? There were communities I've worked in and they said we have a bowl in the communities but we don't eat bushmeat that's not our culture that's right. up north it's the northern part right? right we had communities that said you know we said don't don't touch your don't touch your dead bodies like bring bring them to us and you know mm-hmm. there's this whole thing around the safe burial practices right and people were like well we don't You know, we have been burying our dead for years. Our grandfathers never got Ebola. Our ancestors never got Ebola from touching the dead body.
0: You know, sort of structurally, I, I did some research into this. Sort of what's happening sort of overarching at this time too, right, is the World Health Organization, through a lot of their budget cuts, made the choice to cut their medical anthropologists and to keep focused on the laboratory right. science and, and which directly attributed to a lot of policies that were sort of exactly. designed in Geneva or designed in Washington right. that didn't have the local context for right. effectiveness and that became the vital sort of the yeah. last mile
1: I'll give you and I'll, I just want to build build on that thought a bit a bit further right? So within contacts, right, we had all these problems with the communities who were not taking up this message. There was no behavior change. In fact, if anything, there was violence. We heard of ambulances being uh, burned, sure. yeah. right? In fact, the Red Cross ambulance got burned and stuff for different reasons. And that was just because we failed to engage communities. And all along, once we started engaging communities, I can give you solid examples of communities who were ready doing things that we were trying to do. They were already quarantining their communities, their family members and stuff. And once we engaged them, I'll give an example out of Sierra Leone, right? Once we got the interfaith uh, committee to get involved, the leaders got scriptures out of the Quran and biblical texts and took them to their imams and, imams and the priests to take to the communities. And yeah. all of a sudden the tide changed with the least amount of money, the least amount of resistance, because all of a sudden, it was culturally acceptable. It was the people's problem, and they understood it. And this is line I will never, never forget. And It was actually one of the head demands in a little town of Port Loco out in, in Sierra Leone who said to me, he's like, yeah, you guys might be the technical experts, right? But, but I know my community. I know where they are hiding their dead bodies. Yes. I know the ways.
0: So we've actually run into this here in the United States. So there's a, a story, too, in, in Superstorm Sandy where there was a... A parish where the preacher had told them you know don't you don't have to evacuate you just need to pray and uh afterwards though i you know some of the leaders involved i i I really credit them because instead of saying how do we keep this 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 uh preacher quiet it was how do we engage them ahead of time so that they're part of the solution in doing that so this sort of local resilience even in this large global context is the difference you can have the best science in the world in all of the journals on the bookshelf but if they're not reaching the actions on the ground if they're not yeah. connecting with the people then then they're just words in the journal yeah.
1: Yeah. and beyond that so really I hate to use the word sad but that's the first word that's coming to me right now the whole sad thing about how we as a society right as a disaster society academic society whatever you might want to call us miss out on community engagement the type of thing the same underlying community engagement that it's a right based approach and here we are as a community, as disaster responders trying to go in to protect the rights of people, right? That's what a crisis is. That's what a humanitarian response is. People who can no longer access their rights. And here we go perform something. And we have a rights-based approach, but we choose not to take it because we're in this old mindset, thought process that says, you know, we don't have time to engage. And that's that's not the reality on the ground. In very few cases there is, right? So I think the bottom line is there is... It's probably challenging those
0: no options. Yeah. So we're, we're just about out of time here, but um, I did want to ask you as well, too. I mean, you've had so much great experiences that have led, both experiences and, and studies, to combine to just these, these great perspectives. And, and thank you, of course, for sharing them with us and, and, and helping to keep this conversation going. Uh, what's, what's next for you? What are you looking at doing now? And is there a way for folks to follow you if they, uh, they want to keep up with your work, if you're writing or things
1: like that? I for sure am going to keep seeking opportunities to be in the front lines when it comes to crisis because I truly believe it's where I can make a different, an impact and I truly believe that we are some of the fortunate people that are able to help other communities. So there's no doubt in my mind that that's the track I'm to go carry on going, going along. And obviously the other piece about this is, again, something we started at the beginning is talking about this as much as we can and getting the message out and empowering everybody to take the right steps to actually make a difference for somebody. Uh, in terms of following my work, I can be reached at Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Alam 3 That's U-Z-M-A-A-L-A-M-3. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Alam, And I do share a lot of my blogs, writing articles on, on this site. Okay. Well, thank
0: you. Well, great. Well, thank you. And of course, I, I'm pretty sure we're not going to solve the issue of international disasters in this round. So <laughs> sure. hopefully we'll have you back and keep up with things. But thanks again for just sharing all of this thank and for taking you. the this time. Thank you. This is a
1: pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Joining me now is Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony is an international journalist who's traveled the world, and he's published in dozens of publications, including The New York Times, The Washington Post. He's a regular t- contributor to The Guardian. He's also written several books, including Disaster Capitalism, which he's working on making into a full documentary film. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Why don't you talk to us a little bit on how you came to writing the book Disaster Capitalism and working on the film, and and where in your journalism did you sort of start to, and in your travels, were you kind of gravitating towards this this idea of disaster capitalism?
2: So I've been um, a journalist for about 15 years, and one of the things I've been noticing, particularly traveling to places like Israel, Palestine, and others, was there often is a culture in these countries supported by the UN and many private companies to, I would argue, manage a conflict rather than end it. Now, that's not in itself, for example, arguing that the UN, for example, is to blame for the Palestine conflict. Far from it. But I saw over years that a lot of these places that I was visiting as a journalist, I thought that there was a real problem in not just the profit motive, but also in a management culture within places like palestine and elsewhere where there didn't seem to be a great deal of interest in a way in ending a conflict or certainly putting pressure on the players to end the conflict disaster capitalism of course is a term that was coined by naomi klein the canadian journalist and writer and in her book the shock doctrine which came out in 2007 and i was interested in expanding on her thesis her thesis and my thesis essentially is the same which is people making money from misery so that could be through aid and development that could be through war that could be through um, mining that could be through refugees And my book, Disaster Capitalism, um, really looks at all those areas in different countries around the world, from Afghanistan to Haiti, Papua New Guinea, to the US and the UK. And the aid area is one that I've also examined deeply in my own work. I'm not an aid worker myself, but I've certainly been to a lot of countries where I've seen the aid industry up close. I've lived in 2015. I lived in South Sudan for a year. I've just been living in Jerusalem uh, for the last year and a half. So I've seen really up close, a great deal of the aid industry in those countries, and for that matter, the connection between the aid industry, the UN, journalism, multinationals, private industry, and often that um, combination can work well. I'm not inherently saying it's bad by definition, but I'm saying in a lot of these places I'm visiting, particularly, say, Haiti, Afghanistan, and Palestine, I would argue that, in fact, there's been a culture of perpetuating a conflict rather than trying to end it.
0: So do you find that this kind of culture of perpetuating it, is this driven more locally and sort of this this reliance that's developed that that's built off of these international organizations or the international organizations that have sort of created an industry that they need in order to continue to survive or some combination of the two? What do you think are some of the causes here?
2: I think it's a combination of, of two. Um, certainly there's no doubt in some countries there's a local NGO, for example, that is desperate for foreign funding and wants to perpetuate a certain issue. So donor X in Washington or London will keep on funding and that obviously is an issue. I think in the scheme of things though, that is not a massive problem I and mean, yes, there's corruption in every country and in Haiti and Afghanistan for example, corruption is a massive issue for sure. But I think a greater problem is often organisations and NGOs, particularly ones run for proffers, that are either deliberately skewing data to exaggerate a problem. And I'll give you a short example. So in Haiti, of course, listeners will be aware there was a horrific earthquake in 2010. Um, It killed, well, no one knows how many people are killed, anywhere between 50,000 and 300,000. And the crisis happened. A lot of NGOs rushed in, the ones who weren't there already. The US came in there, the UN was already there as well. And there's no doubt initially after the huge disaster, which was mainly, mainly centered around Port-au-Prince, the capital, there was aid required, literally life-saving aid, You know, removing damage from buildings, um, water, food, for sure. But what you saw in Haiti over time, and I've spent a lot of time there in the last five or six years, is a lot of locals and also more critical Westerners who were based there said they saw a lot of evidence of Western NGOs exaggerating issues. So donors back in the host countries, host countries being Australia, US, UK, parts of Europe, would continue funding a program even though potentially the problem that they were trying to fund was either over or much less serious than was being claimed. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that all these NGOs in Haiti are inherently corrupt. What I am saying, though, is we should, as an international community, ask ourselves, why is a country like Haiti, which has received billions and billions and billions of dollars of aid over years, long before the earthquake and since the earthquake, really still the poorest country in its hemisphere, still profoundly unequal and still, I would argue, a client state of the U.S. Now, that not just harms Haitians themselves, which of course it does, but also I think there's a certain mindset in many NGOs that I saw working in Haiti which says we don't really believe in a great deal of information sharing. So when NGOs come into Haiti after an earthquake, they bring their own people uh, from, say, the U.S., and too rarely are locals trained in those problems. So NGO X leaves in a year or two years, Right. and Haitians themselves often have not got their training them to to continue that work. Now there are exceptions to that, of course, but sure. I saw that time and time and time again in Haiti, and Afghanistan, and elsewhere too.
0: So you sort of have these these uh, NGOs or these for-profit organizations or the, these different aid groups sort of coming in and setting up shop, and it's a turnkey operation, but they don't really do much to sort of build that local capacity to sort of build it Absolutely. so that it can exist yes. without them. Yeah, um, It is,
2: and I mean, some ways people often sort of say, you know, what's the solution to that? Well, on one level, it's sort of the simplest thing in the world, which is to say, actually ask what locals want. It's such an obvious thing to do. And not that I'm saying, you know, local Haitian person is a ubiquitous thing, sure. there's going to be a thousand different views, of course there are, but, and it's not helped, of course, and Haiti's a particularly egregious example because of the history and the dark history of the Washington with the Haitian regime over 100 or so years, so it's, it's not a pretty relationship then or now.
0: You know, I've spent a lot of time kind of working at the intersection of some government and then private sector, both the for-profit and the non-profit. And it's it's always interesting to me how... You know, on the for profit, you have shareholders and you sort of that you are sort of ultimately accountable to and need to ultimately demonstrate profit making. But also, even, yes. on, the, even on the nonprofit side, right, there are donors who want to see the pictures, who want to feel like a hero for contributing that you're constantly Absolutely. also trying to cater to. Yeah. Do you think that this kind of incentive structure is, is part of the cause of this, that it's it's maybe embedded in the DNA of kind of the way that we do aid um, or that that it's a more conscious effort?
2: Well, the question really is also, isn't it, do do NGOs and donors actually want to solve the problem? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you'd say in a logical sense, well, of course, why wouldn't they want to? And again, I don't want to prescribe profound cynicism to every NGO operating in <laughs> sure. Haiti. Hey, of course, that's not the case, or Af- Afghanistan or Palestine for that matter. But I think there are real questions about... The motivation of many organizations that are operating in say haiti or afghanistan i think there's also a sense somehow not just of not capacity building locals but also i think there is a profound problem in not particularly not just you know not just ignoring what locals might want but also i think a belief somehow that locals don't actually have the answers themselves so almost like you de-skill locals and in a place like afghanistan which of course is a you know arguably far more dire state than even Haiti is. You actually are fueling the insurgency. You're fueling an insurgency because you're essentially not just militarizing aid. And I've seen in Afghanistan time and time again the US military and the aid world unhealthily um, merging into each other. In other words, often there's a case where aid organization X wants to go to a province. It's incredibly dangerous because it's controlled by the Taliban or some mm-hmm. other insurgent group. And the only way to get that aid delivered is through the support of, say, the U.S. military. Now, groups like MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, mm-hmm. refuses to deliver aid through the military. So their argument will be, well, if we can't get to Province X, we're not going to go there, full stop. Now, obviously, MSF does go virtually everywhere, and I deeply admire them for doing that. But a lot of NGOs don't think like that, and they're happy or willing, I should say, to accept uh, a military support, a military escort. The problem with that is yes, local community X may well get food. And of course, I support people getting fed. But the longer term effect of that, in fact, is very negative because actually it says, and I've spoken to a lot of Afghans in Afghanistan, for them, aid in the military become one and the same thing. There is no difference for them. Mm -hmm. So... And if you militarize aid to that extent, I think what you find, and you see this in Afghanistan, you saw it in Iraq, you are seeing it in Syria, and as the war in Syria, let's hope, winds down at some point, God help us, in the coming years, and Syria is going to need a profound rebuilding effort to get it back to any kind of sort of livable reality, you're going to have a lot of instability and a lot of military support, to the aid world, and I think that's really a problem, and I often find in my work, there's not a lot of discussion about that. Yes, some NGOs are not happy with the fact that they are having to get the military to support them, for sure, but I think too many are willing to accept that line, and of course USAID themselves are more than happy to push that argument. Their view is that the US military is a wonderfully effective method of delivering aid, and having spent a lot of time in countries where that happens, I can tell you, and I'm sure our listeners will know this themselves. That is a really worrying development, and it's been going mm-hmm. on for years. But particularly since 9/11, it's got a lot worse during the Bush, Obama years, and no doubt during the Trump years as well.
0: You know, there's a there's a finite, you know, set of donors out there. And there is even with independent organizations that are all looking to achieve the same mission, there is a certain degree of, of competition for funding and what's the best yes. way to get access. But you mentioned the military as well, too, and uh, military strategy, particularly with the U.S., but not also not exclusive to the U.S. We're seeing it with other world powers, especially with China, to a certain extent, Russia, yes. where where aid and rebuilding becomes uh, um almost a military diplomacy. It's a, it's a diplomatic arm of, uh, of the, the military uh, that's trying to rebuild a nation. And, and obviously, Afghanistan is one of our, our longest running um, conflicts at the center of that. Well
2: it is. For sure. I mean, it's in 2015. I was living in South Sudan. Now, the the U.S. perspective on South Sudan these days is almost to ignore it, which of course was not the case for a long time. In South Sudan is the, the world's newest nation. The U.S., particularly with George W. Bush and Obama, invested billions and billions of dollars to support what ended up being an incredibly corrupt and violent regime to come to power. The country became independent in 2011, but since 2013, as listeners will be aware, the country has descended into chaos and now is on the verge of a horrific genocide. Now, the reason I mentioned South Sudan is, A, you had there China sending a lot of peacekeepers which is a rare thing for China to do. Now, the cynical view is that China was doing that to get access in time Mm -hmm. to what is a massive oil resource in South Sudan. And I think there's also a sense in South Sudan, I hadn't seen this in many other countries, if the UN and NGOs pulled out tomorrow, South Sudan would undeniably be in far worse shape. There's no doubt about that. On the other hand, I think it's a really unhealthy state of affairs that essentially you have an NGOization and a un of a conflict. In other words, you have unelected bodies supporting and running a country. Now, that, to me, is deeply unhealthy in the 21st century, apart from it being quasi-imperial and colonial. It's, I think, also sending a message that we in the West are, if not comfortable, certainly willing, almost indefinitely, to run a country when a regime is either unwilling to do it themselves. Now, again, I'm not arguing for a second that the UN or NGO should pull out of South Sudan tomorrow because if they did, you'd have a far greater problem than you do now, for sure. But I don't think there's enough people asking about whether um, we feel that it's okay to have international unelected bodies running countries indefinitely. I think it's a problem.
0: You know, and and we've talked about a couple of kind of the external players inserting themselves in here. We talked about the NGO and the for-profit aid industry. And and that term industry seems to sort of capture a lot of different things where it's very, maybe well-intentioned, but has a lot of ripple effects and a lot of sort of internal incentives to the industry that compete for funds and either need to show explicit profits or, or, or show pictures to make donors think that they're being the heroes. We've talked a little bit about um, some of the incentives behind sort of the military diplomacy um, either for the purposes of nation building for national security, or as you mentioned, South Sudan, access to oil reserves and economic interests. I'm curious mm. now, too, there's sort of two, two more levels that we haven't gotten too much into yet. And the first is the nations themselves. And the second is the 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 UN and the international Uh organizations that are supposed to be kind of refereeing all of this. But let's start with the nations themselves, South Sudan, Haiti, Palestine, sort of different these different targets of aid organizations. Why why are they letting folks in? Um, What's their kind of incentive? How does that how do they play into all of this?
2: Well, sadly, in all those three examples, South Sudan, Haiti, and Palestine, and we can certainly name others, Afghanistan and others, um, these countries are not independent. They're independent on paper, but in reality, or Palestine, in fact, not even independent on paper, but South Sudan and Haiti certainly is. They have a seat at the UN. ASOS is Palestine now, actually. But in practice, um, many of the leaders and government institutions are propped up by either Western aid or other kind of forms of outside support. So the Haitian government over decades, really, when it was a dictatorship back in the day to now when it's quasi-democratic, although many Haitians would disagree with that entirely, but let's just say that it's certainly, um, it's not a brutal military dictatorship like it was years ago, but it's far from democratic. The leaders know where their bread is buttered. Mm-hmm. Put it that way. They yeah. know where their money comes from. They know that for example when the leader of Haiti was chosen, literally chosen by Hillary Clinton during the Obama years, there was an election held um soon after the earthquake. It was disputed. And Hillary goes down when she was Secretary of State and essentially chooses who was going to be leader. And that was the guy in charge for many, many years. Now you couldn't get a much more egregious example of um colonialism and in fact WikiLeaks documents gave a lot of detail about that if listeners are interested in finding out more about that afghanistan not dissimilar south sudan um the south sudanese leadership which remains in power was um seen post 9-11 as a a group we're supporting against sudan because the sudanese are muslim and they they had housed Bin Laden back in the day, and the South Sudanese were Christian. And George W. Bush had a lot of evangelical Christian supporters who liked the idea of supporting a Christian state in the heart of Africa against what was seen as an extremist Sudanese regime. Well, fast forward to 2017, and those same leaders, not least Salva Kiir, who is the president, is an undoubted war criminal who has committed genocide against his own people. Now, you could say that many people, including the US, including George Clooney, and many other people who supported the South Sudanese um, call for independence, turned a blind eye to the abuses of the people mm-hmm. that they were backing. This was not a secret. Now, obviously, one couldn't have predicted exactly how things would played out, but if you, as an outside power, the UN, the US, others, do not actually invest in actual nation building, which does not just involve military support, it involves Institutional backing. How do you build a state? And the U.S. is unbelievably bad at doing that. In fact, I can think of very, very few examples in the last years where the U.S. has done that well in terms of a country from the ground up, at least. Um, Palestine, again briefly, is another situation. I mean, it's been occupation by Israel for 50 years. The Palestinian Authority is a is a is a an elected government, but its term, the Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president his four-year term, that he had a four-year electoral term which expired, you know, years ago. You know, he's only yeah. 12th year now. So in you know, all these cases, the U.S. and other powers don't care, to be honest, that the leaders that they're dealing with are corrupt. I mean, in some ways, in fact, true democracy is the greatest threat to outside influence because if you have a, a seriously energetic, independent state, you would not actually be as willing to accept probably outside support from Washington, the EU or others. And all those states we've talked about are not just willing to accept outside support. They know if they don't, they won't exist. They won't exist as a president. They won't exist as a prime minister. They're not going to be in power. And whether their people themselves of the countries like or support that, of course, is another question. But often they don't get an election to choose. So... You know, um, that's, the, that's the reality in many of those countries.
0: You know, I, I think about this. I don't know why I keep thinking about like if you have a credit card and then they change the terms of service, you get a letter from them saying, you know, it's cool if you don't like it, just, you know, just pay off the outstanding balance. And well, if you've yeah. got a large outstanding balance, you've been planning several years, you don't necessarily have that option. I, and it's obviously oversimplistic. But it's interesting that, that you know, these uh, the leadership of these countries become so dependent on the foreign aid that it really becomes an existential threat to uh, at least their individual ability to keep on ruling um, and uh, obviously having big repercussions throughout the nation uh, that they're yeah. that they're working for, if the aid is in fact uh, obviously reaching as it's intended to. Now, with the the United Nations and the World Health Organization, and I know they've come out with these sustainable development goals and a lot of these things towards sustainable development. Um, is where are they at in all of this? I mean, theoretically, they should be refereeing this and establishing international law. And um, is that? Is that just not getting traction? Do they not have the leverage? Or
2: or how does that play out? Well, many of the countries we've been um, talking about, Jeff, the UN's role is murky at best. So Mm -hmm. um, the UN to me is a body which is utterly, utterly essential. And if it did not exist, the world would would be in a far worse shape. At the same time, it's a profoundly compromised body that needs unbelievable amounts of reform and i don't see a great deal of evidence that actually happening even with the new secretary general um, guterres so look in a place like south sudan a short example um when the violence escalated in 2013 the un opened um so-called camps to allow civilians to flee and be protected from essentially the south sudanese regime These camps still exist, there's about 250,000 South Sudanese civilians sheltering for years in these protection of civilian camps dotted throughout the country. I've been to some of these camps. I mean, when I use the term camp, believe me, I'm being generous. They are kind of very, very basic, um, often violent, swamp infested. It's a grim reality there. Mm -hmm. Although possibly safer there than living in a village that's burnt down down the road. Um, for many South Sudanese civilians. I think the UN also, in many, particularly in Africa, we saw that in Haiti as well, have a real accountability problem. And that is, I'm thinking when I say that, particularly about sexual abuse and sexual assault by UN peacekeepers. This is happening in uh, Congo, it's happened in Haiti, it's happened in South Sudan. And there are very, very few examples of not just these uh, individuals who are um, doing the sexual assault of being prosecuted themselves, but often the whistleblowers who are coming out to report that, they themselves are being targeted by the UN. There's been a lot of examples of that. I'm sure listeners will be aware in the last couple of years across Africa. And it seems strange that there's a lot of leadership at the top levels of the UN, particularly in New York and elsewhere, who are really the only way to see it is that they are willing to protect sexual abusers. And I think the reason that's happening is, apart from the fact it's incredibly immoral, but putting the morality aside is, there is, I think, a fear within elements of the UN that if you start going after country X that has provided troops and some of those troops have raped children or whatever, that many other countries will be scared to put forward troops in the future if they see another country... Being persecuted in their, you know, in their mind for these sort of crimes. Now, that is an incredibly short-term thinking view in my perspective, right. because ultimately, if you're looking to protect civilians, the simple basic fact is you protect civilians, and the UN has been incredibly bad at doing that in many, many countries. Um, Ban Ki Moon, the former Secretary General, pledged to change things. Not much happened in his 10-year reign. Antonio Guterres, of course, as the new head of the UN, again has pledged to make changes. So let's wait and see. But history would suggest it's not very likely to happen. So the protection of civilians in terms of sexual assault has been pretty poor. And the other issue, I think, is in a place like South Sudan and elsewhere is the UN bureaucracy is so massive that moving anything is like shifting the Titanic. Sure. Um, that you are really... Um, Trying to turn around a bureaucracy that again has a great deal of self interest in protecting their own interests. Now, of course, what's interesting with the Trump administration is that they are likely to massively cut UN funding. And listeners, I'm sure, will be very aware that the UN uh, doesn't solely rely on the US, but the US is a pretty massive supporter financially of the United Nations around the world. So, despite all my criticisms and on the ground reporting in a lot of these countries, I do think that a huge reduction in peacekeeping is actually a problem. And that if the US under Trump and Nikki Haley, the, um, the Trump's uh, U- UN, UN ambassador, exactly, yeah. is thinking that somehow a so-called America first policy that's going to help people around the world, they're deluding themselves. I'm not saying they actually think that anyway. I think their view is that why should we help Africans? They right. can just help themselves. And if they kill each other, who cares? We are only black people anyway. It's a deeply racist view. And I think whether the proposed cuts will be as deep as they're saying, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I think Trump looks likely to certainly cut UN funding. That's almost certain. Um, and that to me would be a wonderful opportunity and time to actually have a conversation about: Well, are all the UN missions around the world? Do they need to be as big as they are? Do they need to be as well funded? Do they need to be? Are they actually, are they actually managing a conflict? Or ending a conflict and again the UN as you rightly say Jeff should be at the forefront of either solving conflicts or at least bringing the warring parties to the table and in some cases they for certainly they are doing that in a place like Palestine or a place like Afghanistan I would say it's more a question of management rather than solving it and that I think is again a question of whether we as an international community want the UN to have that role.
0: Bring up a good point there, and I think with the uh, with the United Nations, right? It's uh, you know we think of it as this uh, international organization that is uh, singularly branded, but in practice, right? It, it's made up of delegates from you know several hundred countries who yeah. are all. Uh, uh, representing their own national interests, and theoretically, if you have one country, one vote, but then you have discrepancies in the funding, you have donor nations and aid nations, and and permanent members with veto power on the Security Council, and ones that don't. And yes. it, you bring up a a good point too that with the Trump administration, with all of these different changes, you know, a lot of the gut reaction is to be angry about it, uh, but it also creates an opportunity to to think things differently, to sort of retest these assumptions. And I would hope that, that with some of these more provocative proposals being put forward, um, it's still up to in some cases for the Congress to either go with them in the funding bill yes. or not, uh, but then there are other measures being taken to not fill positions and create a de facto staffing reduction. But it, but it's worth testing some of these assumptions that we have about international relations, But but to your point too, it really needs to be done in a very responsible way and in a way that requires more than 140 characters to have the discussion.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All for that matter of Facebook posts, which of course can be longer than that, but I agree. And again, just to be clear to listeners, I'm not suggesting that the UN should massively shrink its global footprint. What I'm saying is that there should be, and I have not seen a great deal of that being done, um, publicly. I can't speak for within the UN. I think it's una- inevitable that the UN internally is having a conversation because they're pretty damn worried about losing some funding from the US. So I'm sure that's happening, that's happening undoubtedly in the last six months since Trump uh, came into the White House. But ultimately, in places like, say, South Sudan or Afghanistan or Palestine or elsewhere, is, again, the role of the UN to manage conflicts or is to try to push it through to sort of solve them. And I think there's often too much of a treading lightly and not upsetting global powers in doing so. I mean, as a short example, so Gaza, as listeners will be aware, has been occupied for decades. It's been under blockade by Israel and Egypt for 10 years. And the UN does undoubtedly important work there by providing a lot of schooling and education and services and food and resources for the roughly 2 million Palestinians who are often locked into a huge open-air prison, that's undoubtedly all good. But on the other hand, there seems to me to be a great deal of hesitancy in being too critical of Israel as the occupying power or others because I think they fear of being thrown out of the country. Now, That's a legitimate fear in some countries. I'm not suggesting that the nation-state could sort of say to the UN, well, get out, you know, we don't want you here, leave. They could do that. But in a case like Gaza, I can almost guarantee Israel would not do that because, see, again, this is a case where Israel wants the UN to be there. They don't say that publicly, of course, because if the UN leaves, who takes care of the Palestinians? Israel? They don't want to do it. They're happy for the UN. They're happy to bash the UN every day. The UN's anti-Semitic and it's terrible, so Israel claims. That's the argument. But in practice, Israel wants the UN, it needs the UN to do all that work and get international funding to manage Israel's occupation. So that really, I think, is another situation where I have a lot of respect for somewhat the work the UN's doing in Palestine, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I do think it allows Israel off the hook because it provides services that Israel as an occupying power should be providing, or of course should be an independent state anyway. Should be a Palestinian state in my view, but nonetheless, while there's an occupation going on, the UN and others should not be providing a fig leaf and support what I think is a one of the great human rights breaches of the modern age. So, it is the UN's role is interesting and challenging, and I'm not convinced that at least publicly they're as willing to challenge um, global power. And as you say, that really means US, China. Security Council and others, then I think they should be.
0: Yeah. So it seems like, you know, there are all these different groups that are coming into the into the international aid space when a disaster strikes, and they all come for sort of one similar stated mission, but they all carry with them their own institutional or organizational or national objectives, sort of how they sold it back home for being there. And so that's probably an important lesson is that, you know, everybody shows up to help out, but they're also there for another reason. And to sure. be honest about that reason and to, to recognize where that is potentially in incom- conflict with ultimately helping the people who need it most. So let me, let me uh, close off with one question. Um, and I think it's a fairly simple one. Uh, how do we fix
2: all this? Ah, the simple one. How do we fix it all? (laughs) Well, yes, look, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) there's obviously no one size fits all answer, which is sort of obvious, but let me say that anyway. Um, I think that, Uh, Having written about disaster capitalism related issues now for a number of years, what I have found is that there's not, with exceptions, a great deal of openness and public willingness to have these conversations themselves. So when you look, for example, at the Red Cross, who has been exposed for a number of years in Haiti as doing pretty shoddy work, um, getting huge amounts of public uh, donations after, for example, the Haitian earthquake in 2010 and delivering very, very few of the things they claim to be, including housing. They claim to have built thousands of houses, but in fact, ProPublica, the media organization, found that only built very, very few. The Red Cross's response has not been, in my view, particularly good. They've been a bit defensive, very defensive, in fact, and there's not a great deal of evidence in the fact that public uh, posture has changed. Um, to me, I think what can happen, this is one of the things I tried to do in my book and also Disaster Capitalism, the film, which my colleague and I are hoping to finish this year, so listeners can hopefully see that in 2018, is to make members of the public more aware of where their money is going. So if, for example, an earthquake happens or a disaster strikes or whatever, or there's a famine in Africa, people some people at least want to give money and donate, and that's a very, I think, good human trait to want to do that. But I think there should be far more accountability and transparency where that money is going. And that should be done by the organization themselves. Where is the money going? How much money is being spent on admin? How much money is being spent on training locals? How long are you going to be there? What are you supporting? Now, a lot of organizations don't do that and seem weirdly unwilling to do that. And to me, if an organization that you want to donate to does not do that, don't give them money. Um, Again, I'm not saying that that organization is necessarily corrupt, but I'm saying that why should there not be transparency about where their money is going um seems like a pretty reasonable thing to me to ask and demand i think people who are donating money could ask that sometimes it appears on the organization's websites and often it doesn't and in my experience there's a great deal of defensiveness about releasing that information and that to me should change so that's not going to change the world's crises but i think it could be a small step towards at least putting pressure on ngos and others that are operating in these countries to be more accountable. And that, to me, can only be a good thing, particularly for the locals who are suffering in those nations.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, I think, a really important insight into, you know, the the underwriting of Uh, These different tactics and these different approaches is that you know, the the donors underwrite the tactics of the folks that they're giving the money to and they underwrite the objectives in the way that they do business and uh, To your point and I think what I hear you saying is that it's really important that before you give money for someone to do something You need to know what they're gonna do with it because it could cause more harm than good Um, and similarly like we were talking before really having just an honest conversation about you know why are all these different nations coming in and certainly there's a humanitarian element like you said and there's a humanitarian impact but but what are the other reasons for being in there and where can those start sure. to kind of bias the actions that are being taken well, I, I, think this, I think this has been really great to just sort of lay out the landscape, and I'd love to kind of kind of talk about this more, especially as as, uh, as uh, the film starts to get developed and starts to come love out. To. But how can people uh, find your book, how can they follow along with you, Yeah, where can they go to learn more and help support the development of this movie?
2: Okay, so a few things, so my name is, obviously if you just Google my name, Anthony Lowenstein, you'll find uh, stuff online about me, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. People can find out more about the film. The website's disastercapitalismfilm.com. Disastercapitalismfilm.com. The book itself is called Disaster Capitalism Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. It's out by Verso Books. It came out in paperback uh, in January this year, so it should be widely available online in bookshops and Amazon, etc. And yeah, I love people to follow. And these issues, as I said, are timely and relevant. And although There's a little bit more discussion these days, I find, since Trump came in about where U.S. aid money is going. So that's a positive development. It hasn't been many since Trump came into office, in my view. But nonetheless, not enough of those conversations. And, yeah, I'd love people to be in touch and happy to have those conversations with them. And hopefully the film will be out, fingers crossed, next year. We're in the process. The film features Afghanistan, Haiti, and Papua New Guinea. And my colleague and I follow characters in each country. We've been to those countries twice each, since 2012 so it's been a long-term project and sadly in all those three countries not much has changed for the better at all um but we're in the process of editing and finishing it um in this second half of 2017 so not long to go finally
0: well we're looking forward to seeing it and uh and thanks again for coming on and talking about all this
2: my pleasure thanks jeff
0: So that brings us to the end of episode five of Disaster Politics, our special international episode. Thanks to Antony and Dr. Alam for great conversation and sharing great perspectives. I think this has probably been one of the most provocative episodes that we've done to date. And if we sparked something in you, keep the conversation going. We're all about the conversation here at Disaster Politics. Send us an email at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Or let's have the conversation over Twitter. Tweet at us. We're at DisasterPolitic. If you like what's going on here, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast to help others find the show, and thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe out there.